Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn why so many technology breakthroughs never pan out with writer, producer, and flash forward podcast host Rose Evelyn. Then you'll learn about giant sandworms that used to rule the ocean floor and why that thing you just learned is suddenly everywhere. Let's satisfy some curiosity. If you're the type of person who stays up on the latest technology news, you may have noticed something weird. A lot of the time, there are exciting headlines about an amazing new invention or a breakthrough in some sustainable material or something else that's going to save the world and make our lives better. And then you never hear about it again, ever. What is up with that? Well, today's guest is going to tell us. Rose Eveleth is a writer, producer, and the creator of Flash Forward Presents, a podcast network that demystifies the future, featuring hit shows like Flash Forward and advice for and from the future. And we asked her, why do all these tech breakthroughs we hear about never seem to pan out? I think it happens for a couple of reasons. One, press releases are press releases, right? They are meant to hype, right? And even the best ones that aren't technically lying, right? Their whole job is to get you excited and to cover it and to have people on your show, right? And I get the same press releases where it's like, oh, we've like cracked this thing. And then, you know, you go to it and you're like, oh, you've like made an incremental advance, which is important. Incremental advances are how we get anywhere. But like the claims being made are not always the actual thing. And even sometimes you hear scientists be like, oh, God. That's not what I did, right? Because the press person wrote a press release that like, you know, zhuzhes up the research a little too much. I think the other thing that we see a lot of kind of goes back to that question of who is being asked and involved in this research. So I go back to this a lot because it's the place I've done the most reporting. But a great example is disability like objects. A good example is the iBot. So the iBot is a very cool looking wheelchair that basically can go from four wheels on the ground to two wheels on the ground to kind of raise the person up so that they're at eye level, quote unquote, with, you know, people who are walking around on two legs. They can also climb stairs, you know, it, it, and there's they made all these like really slick design videos and there's these really cool and it looks cool and you're like yeah and then when you talk to folks who use wheelchairs they point out that the vast majority of wheelchair users can't use this chair because it's not it doesn't go with it doesn't work with a power seat which basically is like a kind of support that you would need often if you are a person who uses a wheelchair it's really only for like a very specific type of wheelchair user who are folks who often like got into an accident um, and have been paralyzed in some way, as opposed to folks who, you know, use the chair for other kinds of support. It, it doesn't work that well. It's really wide. And so, you know, when you're trying to use it in your house, you actually like can't get through doors. You can't get around your bed. You know, the design of it doesn't make sense in daily life for a lot of disabled folks. And that's in part because the vast majority of the people who worked on that chair don't use wheelchairs, right? They're not disabled themselves. And so I think a big piece of it is, right, you have people designing stuff for situations that they're not in day to day and they wouldn't think of, right? The other thing about the iBot is it makes transfer from chair to bed or chair to chair really hard because it's a weird height. You're like you're kind of like at a really odd height. And so like trying to go from the chair to the bed it actually winds up being really hard to do and kind of unsafe. And so the best use of it is that you use it only when you're outside and then you have a different chair you use when you're inside, which like, as you probably are aware, like healthcare and health insurance in the United States is not great. And getting them to pay for one wheelchair is already really hard. Getting them to pay for like a second outdoor wheelchair is extremely hard. So again, it's then you can, who can afford it. So you end up in these situations where the thing looks really cool or sounds really cool, 
And then the actual people who need to use it are like, yeah, I can't I can't use that. That's like not a thing that is actually going to work for me because they weren't involved in the design process. So I think that's part of it as well. And then there's like on the environmental side, you know, you get all this like, oh, we're going to recycle this plastic with fungi. Right. You've probably seen like 9000 versions of that. Like we're going to recycle plastic with insert surprising word here. Right. And that's also really challenging because there are so many different types of plastic and most of these applications only work on like one really specific type of plastic. And the way that the actual infrastructure works for moving plastic around and processing it is complicated and not really it doesn't fit in. So there's lots of reasons. But I think a lot of it is that people are developing these solutions without sort of like having a holistic picture of either the chain that needs to happen for that thing to be used or the people at the end of this who are going to use it. Again, that was Rose Eveleth, a writer, producer, and the creator of Flash Forward Presents, a podcast network that demystifies the future, featuring hit shows like Flash Forward and Advice for and from the Future. You can find a link to all that in today's show notes. Suppose it's 20 million years ago, and you're a fish, swimming about your day. You look down and realize the seafloor is covered in little holes? They're about the diameter of a ping pong ball. You're curious, but just as you swim down to get a better look, a gigantic worm bursts out of one, grabs you with its fearsome jaws, and pulls you deep down beneath the seafloor. Ambushed by a Panicnus formosi. What rotten luck. Womp womp. Researchers recently found 319 of these holes and the burrows they connect to preserved as fossils in the seafloor off the coast of Taiwan. And these burrows are big. They extend six feet or two meters into the seafloor, around six times as long as the typical burrows researchers find. They have this L shape that goes vertical for about half the distance and then turns horizontal for the rest. That incredible length suggests that the worms that lived in them might have been just as enormous. We're talking the height of a full grown man, which also means we're talking about giant sandworms. On our planet, not Arrakis. It took the researchers some time to figure out what these holes belonged to. After all, a lot of sea creatures make holes in the sand. It wasn't until they carefully examined the tops of the holes that things came into focus. When modern carnivorous sea worms, like the fearsome bobbit worm, ambush prey, the attack causes their holes to partly collapse. The constant rebuilding leads the top to take on a distinctive pattern of concentric circles, which is exactly what the fossils show. There was also a high concentration of iron in the top part of the burrow, which suggests that the ancient worms used their own mucus to strengthen its walls. These fossilized burrows are a big deal for researchers who study this kind of thing. Predatory worms have been around for more than 400 million years, but their bodies are soft and very rarely leave fossils. That means researchers don't have a lot of evidence to work with, which is why these burrows are such a find. And they contain other tantalizing clues that researchers will be picking apart for years. Researchers aren't sure how P. formosi are related to modern carnivorous sea worms like the bobbit worm, but one thing is clear. Both species have hit on a niche that works for them. This kind of truly terrifying worm has been around since way before the dinosaurs, and it's hard to imagine them disappearing anytime soon. The worm may be terrifying, but remember, fear is the mind killer. The research must flow, Cody.
(laughs) (laughs) Sure, those carnivorous worms are old, but you know what else feels like ancient history? June 2018. That's when we answered a listener question on our podcast that had such an amazing answer, we remastered the story just for you. Take a listen. We'll wrap up with a question from Caitlin in Montana. Quote, when do our minds start to consciously recognize something we hear better after it's been connected to a significant event? For example, my song at graduation was We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel. Great song. Upon hearing the song at my graduation, my brother has, from here on out, recognized that he's heard the song almost five times in the span of a month. But he also says that before my graduation, he doesn't remember ever having heard it. Assuming he'd heard it before my graduation but didn't recognize it, and now he cannot help but recognize it, we're wondering what processes occur to make that happen, unquote. This is a great question and basically one of our favorite psychology things here in the Curiosity Office. Your brother is experiencing the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, which is also called the frequency illusion or recency illusion. Experts say that it's caused by two things. The first is called selective attention. That happens when you're struck by a new word, a thing, or an idea. After that, you unconsciously kind of keep an eye out for it. And when you keep an eye out for something, you actually will see it a lot more often. Even if you're not doing it on purpose. Again, that's unconsciously. Right. And the second process is confirmation bias, which if you listen to the podcast, you probably are familiar with it. It tells you that each sighting is more proof that you're actually seeing this thing more often. For example, if you buy a yellow Mazda... You are primed to think about yellow Mazdas now when you never were before. And suddenly you are now going to see every yellow Mazda that passes you. And you're going to notice that and keep kind of a mental tally, even if you see just as many yellow Mazdas now as you did before. Thanks for your question, Caitlin. Let's do a quick recap of what we learned today. We learned that part of the reason you hear about huge technology breakthroughs and then never hear about them ever again is because of marketing. Press releases are designed to get attention, so sometimes things get overblown a bit. And another is that sometimes people design solutions without understanding how they might be implemented, or whether they really solve the problem they're setting out to fix. And we asked this question because this is something we deal with as hosts of a science podcast all the time. You know, we constantly read press releases, and it's gotten to the point where a technology story needs to pass a really high bar for us to cover it. Because we don't want to constantly be telling you about some cool new thing that actually isn't that cool because it's never going to see the light of day. Yeah, it's really hard for anyone, including us, to parse out what's going to be around next week and and what isn't. You know, like there was a thing about a a barge that could use some process to convert plastic and, and clean it up from the ocean. But like a lot of the coverage failed to mention that that barge would also be pulling in a bunch of fish and killing them and disrupting ecosystems. So it's just like you're kind of breaking even there, right? It just happens all the time. There are a lot of potential technologies we'll talk about. If you listen to the specific language that we use, we'll always emphasize things like this could someday lead to X or Y, or this may in the far future vaguely be a thing that we look more into. It's never like, well, in three years, we're going to have a button you press and it fixes the earth. Like that's... That's not a thing. Right. But if we have to use too much softening language, we're just not going to run it because that's not fair to you. Right. Yeah. It's all about you. That's actually true. We also learned, speaking of oceans, that our ocean floor used to be teeming with giant sandworms that are almost as tall as I am. So figure there were a couple meters or about six feet. 
Researchers figured this out by looking at fossilized burrows on the seafloor off the coast of Taiwan. And that was a big deal because worms have soft bodies and they don't leave fossils behind very often. It's a great discovery because when it comes to new scientific knowledge, the spice must flow. You already kind of made that joke. So I did. It's okay. Should I keep in both of them? We can make more Dune references. Cool. Do you have any? Nope. Okay. Good talk. <laughs> and we learned about the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon or the frequency illusion, which honestly is one of my favorite things in psychology. I, I love it so much. It happens when you're struck by a new word or idea. And then you unconsciously keep an eye out for it and kind of keep a tally in your head of every time you see or hear it. I feel like this is such a common experience. Yeah, I might have mentioned this the first time we ran it. But when I first got diagnosed with diabetes, I didn't know anything about diabetes. And I was taking improv classes at the time. Every improv show I saw for months after I was diagnosed, every single one had a joke or a reference to diabetes. Every single one without fail. And it made me wonder, I was like, I wonder how many jokes were told about diabetes that I just kind of glossed over in my head or didn't register because like I didn't know anything about it. Yeah, very strange. And if you do improv, stop making so many diabetes jokes. They're they're really tired and old. I'm not like offended. They're just bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm offended by bad jokes. Today's stories were written by Ashley Hamer and Grant Curran and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily. Curiosity Daily is produced and edited by Cody Goff. Join us again tomorrow when we'll be using new microphones that will make you more attractive to people you have a crush on. I mean, none of that's actually been proven in clinical trials, but it seems like it could be fun, right? Or whatever. Just join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. Stay curious.